الجزيرة بودكاست Taking center stage today is Dr. Dalia Fehmi. We know her as an associate professor of political science at Long Island University, and she's well published on the effects of Islamophobia on U.S. foreign policy and American identity and politics. But she's also a prominent personality speaking out against prejudice and Islamophobia in the U.S. and beyond. What can a Muslim do to counter Islamophobia? And for you, that's not just an academic question. It's a personal question, too, because of your personal experience with Islamophobia, right? So I, I, I don't think we talk about encounter Islamophobia because it happens to us. Um, I, I think my story um, was a kind of awakening. So just really briefly, um, in the run-up to the Trump election, we know what the statistics are that uh, Muslim anti-Muslim violence went up 17% every year exponentially, that anti-Muslim hate became a publicly acceptable form of, of racism in the United States, that according to the FBI, the CIA, the Southern Poverty Law Center, 2016 was the most violent time period for Muslims in America. And the reason was because hate had come from the margins to the heart of the political establishment. And again, I can tell you all the statistics, but I was born and raised in, in New Jersey in the United States. And so, so what happened to me was um, the neighboring town's food bank runs out of food. And uh, someone gave me a call and they said, you know, Delia, are you willing to help out? And I was like, of course. And so I said, this month, don't worry, my family's going to take care of the entire um, food bank. So I, t I take my kids to the grocery store and you know, when you're buying that much food, you've got like four or five carts. And they were thrilled to explain to people what we're doing to the point where people were like, here's an extra dollar, go buy something else, right? Lovely. So it was, it was an obvious civic moment. And I'm telling my kids, we don't do this just because we're civic-minded Americans, but because our religion obligates us to take care of our neighbors. So in this beautiful moment, you're one with the community, you're doing something good, the vibe is good, and then... What happens? So we're in the parking lot and I have a, a very large SUV because I'm an American and I can't backload the grocery. So I have to do it from the side, uh, the side of the car. So in the parking spot next to me are, are all of the cards, my son and myself, and we're putting everything into the car. And this man comes in a pickup truck and he starts to rev his engines and he starts to hurl at me words that were his country and his mind people. And I told the kids, just ignore him. You know, there's 600 spaces for him to go to. He proceeds to back his truck into the space, hitting the carts, hitting the doors of my car, and then pins me against my own car. Oh, my God. And if my son was an inanimate object, he would have been run over. And But he jumped out of the way. And when he, he comes out of his car and we're face to face, he says, you effing terrorist C-word. I just braced myself for the blow, right? I, I, I you knew expected I was a, he was going to be violent, yeah. obviously. And he just stares me down and goes into the, into the store. 
And I remember thinking, did I, up until that moment, I was 38 when this happened, live in a false consciousness that I always belonged? I always thought like, hey, I'm a good one, right? I, I wear right. nice shoes. <laughs> I, 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 you kind of, your world gets shattered at that point. I can't even believe this is happening to me. Right. But I'm 38. And then after the longest second, I look to the right and there's my baby boy. She's frozen and his pupils are dilated. And he says, mama, he wanted to kill me. That's his life experience. He didn't grow up with the false consciousness. And so when you think about what these stories do, we know that 48% of Muslim Americans say that they have experienced discrimination. So this isn't a one-off. This isn't a very... 40% is a big chunk of a, of a group, right? And, and, and when one in three of them say that they've experienced violent discrimination... You know, in that same time period, since 2016, how many mosques have been firebombed? How many Islam Islamic schools burnt down the day after the inauguration of Trump? And so when we talk about this, and this is what I write about, the centering of Islamophobia from the heart of the political establishment, what we're talking about is the marginalization and the demonization of not just Islam and Muslims, but there's a political objective. And the political objective is that Muslims become marginalized from civic and political life. So it's not just the hysteria. It's that we start to internalize that we don't belong, that we're not right. part of the fabric of society. And the sad part is, is that one in four Muslim children today in America believes they cannot be both American and Muslim. That's a frightening stat. And it's... I want to come to that in a moment. First, let me say, I'm sorry to hear your story. It's not your fault. Don't apologize. But the same way I'm, Muslims don't have to apologize for everything human, in the world. As a human, apologize. I'm sorry to hear of anyone, and particularly for your kid, to go through something like that. I feel something for that, for anyone, whatever their religion is. I want to turn it round, though, and speak from the perspective of... I don't know what to call them, okay, but the, the other, that horrible term, which says, well, maybe it's the Muslims' fault because they're the ones, the assumption is, and I know you probably have some data to correct this, they're the ones committing the majority of terrorism, right? So if you guys weren't doing most of the terrorism, then you wouldn't be constantly targeted. Clarify that for me. In the past 20 years, according to U.S. Congress, 78% of acts of violence have been committed by white nationalist supremacists. 78% of terrorist violence in the United States. And that's an official From congressional... the U.S. Congress, yeah. Right. According to the FBI, which is the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the CIA, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the number one threat facing the U.S. homeland is white nationalist supremacy right. and the white terror movement. However, when we talk about media coverage, we also know that 85% of US media coverage of Muslims is negative, and that there is 700% more coverage of so-called terrorist attacks by Muslims. Now, is the question then wrong, listening to that, is the question, what can Muslims do 
to, to counter Islamophobia. Now I'm thinking, well, is that the wrong approach? Because it's kind of like putting the onus and the blame on the victim who is not, well, as a group, they're not committing the most terrorism, and certainly most Muslims aren't committing terrorism. It's like saying, well, you know, what can you do to be a little less darky, hairy, scarfy, and maybe we wouldn't have to stereotype you? So let me tell you the statistics about Muslims in America. What we do know is that statistically speaking, Muslims are the sec Muslim women are the second most educated minority group. That Muslim women in America um, have economic gender parity in terms of our earning capacity. We also know that we earn as much as, believe it or not, the average white man, where in America, African-American women make 58 cents on the dollar. We know that, statistically speaking, the more Muslim you are, meaning the more mosque-going you are, the more civic-minded you become. What we do know is that Muslims statistically are not just contributors, but are growers and builders of the United States. And the statistics come from? From Pew, from Gallup, from ISP, res respected institutions, from the U.S. government itself. But aside from that, if you think about the population of Muslims, we're only one percent of the country, mm. right? There's only about numbers say about three and a half million Muslims in America. But if you ask the average American, and this comes out of Pew, there is a seventy-six percent amongst Americans that have a negative association with the words Islam and Muslim, which means when they hear the words Islam and Muslim, they have a negative feeling. So should Muslims who want to try and contribute something to changing that, is there any data to show that outreach programs, interaction changes attitudes? So what we do know about that, you know, that 76% negative I just said, it plummets down to 23% when an American says they know a Muslim. The stereotype is broken when someone says, I indeed know a Muslim. And so that makes the numbers say, wait, maybe we need some not just outreach, but community building. But remember, we're 1% of the population. And so the onus And, and it's hard to get out and meet Islamophobes when their trucks are pinning you up against the wall, right? And when it's a $1.5 billion industry. That's how much money they have access to. All right, explain that part to me. So according to, um, again, government sources, there are today in the United States, militias and what they're called patriot movements. Uh, but are they specifically targeting Muslims or just you're talking about the right wing in general? We're right? talking about the right wing in general. So how is it a 1.5 billion, billion? That's how much money these individuals and these groups have access to. Okay. And they're particularly more Islamophobic in their approach to? Because Islamophobia, and this is really important, is the most publicly acceptable form of racism. So I'll give you an example. When President Obama gave his State of the Union address, he says, and this is the State of the Union, is you have members of Congress, members of the Supreme Court, all of government officials are there. And he says, America is a country that will stand against rising anti-Semitism. The entire chamber stands up and applauds, rightfully so. Right. And in his next breath, he says, and this is a country that will stand against rising Islamophobia. 
The entire chamber remained silent. We heard it loud and clear that Muslims don't belong. And we heard the consequences thereafter and how electoral politics in the United States became defined by Islamophobia. So in 2010, there was a hysteria in New York City where I teach over something called the so-called Ground Zero Mosque, a victory mosque Muslims were building. It was the summer right before the midterm election, the height of the Tea Party. And New York City's streets were filled with protesters against this. By the way, it wasn't a mosque. It was a community center. And there actually is indeed a mosque much closer to um, hallowed grounds. It's already there. Already there. But that got the media attention somehow. Not just it brought the media attention. It allowed the Tea Party to ride the story into office. And right after the election, the hysteria goes away. So there's politics and money at stake here. Politics and money, but it's really electoral seats in this case. Right. Because it worked. Two years later, what do we have? anti-Sharia legislation being passed everywhere. So uh, should Muslims then go into other industries? Is this a way maybe to to counter that narrative? Do we have too many Muslim doctors and engineers? Every time you go to a Muslim family, it's like, oh, mashallah, what's your son going to be? Doctor. So, so I'm not sure that that's true. Because in the United States, what we do know is that in the past election, just this last election, there were 178 Muslims that ran for office. Oh, wow. So then times are changing. Eh? Not just have times have changed since the election of President Trump, since his election, which is just a couple of years ago, there have been over 800 Muslim candidates running for office. We see Muslims on the covers of magazines. We see Muslims becoming more and more visible as part of the fabric of America. But again, once you come up and butt against the level of vitriol that continues to come out of the political establishment, that's what we need to talk about. Why is Islamophobia publicly acceptable as a form of racism? Is there, is there a role that Muslims need to play in embracing their identity? Do you think sometimes Muslims look for a rock to hide under or to try and disguise their identity? Is that part... Well, we do know that Muslim children are doing that, that one in four are denying that they're Muslim public because Islamophobia is being internalized. But aside from that, if you think about what's happening to the fabric of American society, it's fragmentation. Add to that economic constraints and economic pain. We're starting to see that the social pain is articulated in an us first them narrative, right? Throughout the world. And we can't talk about this without the rise of populism, the rise of othering. And so the onus is not on Muslims to say, hey, I'm here and I belong. The onus is on those to listen to the Muslim voices that are saying we're here and we belong. But the justification narrative doesn't need to come from Muslims to say, hey, please accept me. But, you know, to to bring it more real, um, I remember being invited to speak at a, a major think tank in New York City. And it was on countering religious extremism. And I'm telling the audience, you know, this is not what Islam is all about. And the audience is not buying it. Like, they're, they're definitely not buying it. And so the moderator, a really famous journalist, says to me, um, Della, you have children? I said, yes. He said, Do you worry that they'll go on the internet and become radicalized? 
And then you're thinking, wow, like I've just been othered to this Park <laughs> Avenue audience. I've just been signaled that if anyone's children are a threat, it's going to be my It's children. yours. You're the threat. And here we are in New York, um, my city. And I was in graduate school at NYU on 9-11. And my brother was in the towers. And I remember telling the moderator, I said, you know, when Al-Qaeda had its first terrorist attack in Baghdad on the UN headquarters, my cousin from the UN in New York City was stationed there. And she was one of the first victims of Al-Qaeda. What we do know about terrorism is that most of its victims are Muslim. And so here I am sitting in this New York City prestigious room, and the moderator has just signaled to the world that I'm the threat. And yet I've been the one who's most hurt. But, you know, aside from that, here I am with this audience who's looking at me as we don't believe what you're saying about Islam being a religion of peace. And yet when I tell them the story of my son almost being run over, and I had to look at my child and say, no, 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 you're safe. That man right. does not represent America. I'm saying to the audience, you want to will the belief into him that this is not America. The same way I'm sitting here trying to will the understanding that we are a group that's not understood as builders. This episode was produced in partnership with the Islam and Muslims Initiative, an international platform that connects Muslims and non-Muslims in the realms of religion, politics, business, media, academia, and civil society.